Yes. Yes. First, let me start with introduction. Uh, um, of course, uh, to our attendees, um, uh, uh, it's a pleasure and honor uh, to uh, um, host our esteemed and special guest today. Definitely uh, needs an introduction. And if you don't uh, know him, definitely you uh, could be in trouble and you should um, uh, revise your uh, stroke knowledge, of course. He is one of the few who can be called the stroke game changer. Uh, we call him uh, Stroke Santa, who brought the a new dawn for stroke victims around the world, uh, Professor uh, Theodore Juvan. He is a professor of neurology and neurosurgery and medical director at Cooper uh, Neurological Institute. And he is a chairman of Neurology Service, New Jersey, USA. And also let me introduce uh, our uh, esteemed Mina Sino uh, expert and board members, uh, Dr. C.B. John. Uh, he is one of the, our renewed and uh, uh, very specialized neurointerventional expert. Uh, he's working in Cleveland Clinic, Abu Dhabi, uh, UAA. And uh, also uh, Dr. Uh, professor Osmer Oskan. Uh, Oskan Osmer, uh, he is a professor of clinical and interventional neurology, Izmir uh, uh, University, Turkey. He is a president of Turkish Society of Cerebrovascular Disease. And uh, I think it will be a very fruitful discussion, especially uh, we have so many to be discussed. And uh, uh, let's start uh, and leave the, the uh, mic for Dr. Oskan and Dr. Sebi for starting this discussion. Good morning, Judah. Uh, this is Sebi uh, from Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. Uh, thank you very much for taking time. Hi, and, Sebi. Uh, Thank you. Thank no, you for I... taking time and participating in this. Uh, we are very eager to hear your opinions on a host of issues uh, that we as the uh, rest of the world are battling with. So thank you once again. Hi, uh, Tudor. I'm, no, thank uh, you. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. Hey. I'm, I'm Attila Ajan. How are you? Uh, hey, hey, good, good. Yeah. Lastly, I see you in Istanbul. Well. So then the, everything has changed. So hopefully we'll uh, pass this period. Yes, yes, we just we just uh, managed to get that meeting done, and then afterwards everything changed. Huh? Yes, yes, it's nice so to hear you. I'm glad, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we, we were able to make it. Huh? Yes, 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 definitely. Uh, I'm glad to hear you here, and it's a great motivation for us. Thanks, thanks for uh, the uh, interview and your efforts. So Tudor, no, uh, Osama has a few uh, cases to go through, but I guess we can start off. Uh, could you give us a brief, uh, what your experience is uh, right now in uh, uh, Northeast America, I guess, and what your experience from SWIN members is? Right, right. So in fact, uh, you know, I, I want to actually use this opportunity as well to uh, let everybody know that uh, we are, the SVIN is, um, uh, putting together a, um, a SVIN COVID registry because um, that so that that would uh, hopefully allow us to understand a bit better what the implications are of this pandemic specifically for stroke um, because there's a lot of uh, innuendo we don't there's a lot of uh, different experiences uh, as you all know, there's uh, there are these uh, th there's been this uh, recent letter to the New England Journal of Medicine publication that uh, discusses 
um, uh, the, you know, the, the a higher incidence of large vessel occlusion, mm -hmm. hypercoagulable states in patients, uh, in young patients uh, in New York. Many centers have not that had this experience. Um, so we're trying to understand a bit uh, what's going on in terms of uh, the, the implication of the pandemic for stroke. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, for those who are interested, uh, we are uh, putting together a registry that is meant to really be a worldwide registry uh, where we want to enter uh, only patients who had stroke and are COVID positive and, um, uh, and um, are, uh, you know, and, and reference it to the uh, entire number of COVID positive patients that were admitted at, at respective hospitals. So we hope to get a good feel for uh, not only the numerator, but also the denominator, because that's really been the big problem uh, with all these registries, we don't have a good handle of the denominator. How much, uh, um, what's the implication of the, of the uh, you know, what are the, re what is the real prevalence uh, of, of stroke in patients with, with COVID uh, uh, positive uh, infections? Uh, we know that the impact is real otherwise in that, in that it, there is sort of, uh, unanimous agreement that the pandemic had a negative uh, Im impact on on uh, on the uh, on stroke because a lot less stroke patients are coming to the hospital. We're seeing this nationwide in the U.S. and we're seeing this I hear worldwide. And from what I gather by contacting centers about the COVID registry. Uh, you know, and again, we haven't put the data together, but what is sort of coming out a bit more is that number one, uh, the the prevalence of uh, stroke in COVID patients is not as high as was reported in the Chinese paper uh, coming out of Wuhan. They uh, reported there a five percent incidence. I don't think based on our experience here, talking to other centers uh, in the US and then other centers across the world, especially in Europe where uh, in, in, in Spain and, and, and Italy where they've been hit very hard, um, the incidence is more like 1%. But again, uh, we'll have this data. And for the ones who are interested in participating in this registry, um, please send me an email at tudorjovin at gmail.com. It's an SVIN-wide initiative. We very much welcome everybody to, to participate. It's not that much work. Uh, it only has to do, you know, it's a, it's a, um, a CRF, a clinical report form uh, that has about 70 points of entry. And most hospitals just have a handful of, of, of COVID-positive stroke patients. So it shouldn't be that much that uh, taxing that that much uh, uh, work, but we also are very. I mean, that part of this is to actually know exactly at, at each center what the total number of, of COVID admissions uh, are. So the so number one, clearly the you know one percent or whatever it is, um, this is a bit more than what you would expect 
in the general population as far as as incidents, uh, but it's not nearly close as that the five percent that was that was uh, initially thought to be. Uh, again, this is very preliminary. My feel for it more than anything else. Uh, the other, uh, uh, the, so the other issue that is coming out everywhere uh, is um, the fact that um, the, the stroke admissions people, and I, I'm curious what the situation is in the Middle East. I would be stunned if that wasn't the case there too. Uh, the overall stroke admissions are down. So people simply don't, do not uh, want to come into the hospital. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that's sort of, uh, of course, understandable. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's typically the, the strokes that are more severe. We've actually looked at this data at our own center. We have noticed uh, an an increase in the median NIH stroke scale score for our admissions. Uh, our admissions are also about 30% down. That's obviously not good. We are, um, uh, you know, we're, we're missing on a lot of opportunities to treat the patients who, who have mild strokes, who then come, can come on and, and if they have carotid stenosis or some high risk intracranial disease or whatever, uh, they're missing the opportunity to uh, to be treated uh, adequately uh, from the first go and, and, and thus sort of uh, um, uh, avoid the, the second recurrent event. But unfortunately, that's what it is. Um, we um, are we're, are almost ready to publish our own data, which is very much aligned with what other centers have, have, dis have described, which is a, an overall uh, reduction in the number of, of strokes. Uh, also, um, what's been described is more severe strokes. Uh, again, in line with our own experience, what we've noticed is that patients uh, tend to come in later. Uh, the um, uh, ambulance ser services, they, 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 even those that, that come in uh, tend to come in uh, at the last minute, so to speak, they, the uh, door, the onset to arrival time to the ED is much longer than during normal times. Again, this is something that has been shown at other centers. And um, because there is a bit of an enriched patient population with regards to severity of strokes, so these people have uh, more severe strokes, uh, they tend to have a higher percentage of large vessel occlusion. However, um, as opposed to what's been sort of um, uh, shown in other places, the overall feeling I have is that the, the incidence of large vessel occlusion is, um, the incidence of large vessel occlusion is um, not necessarily higher than pre COVID. So maybe if there is an, an increase, it's, it's, very, it's very mild. So um, these are the kind of observations we've made. We now treat, uh, and, and again, this is sort of um, in line with the observation that patients are coming in with more severe strokes. Our, our overall uh, admission rate 
has gone down 30%. Before we were doing about 20% thrombectomy on the patients that were, that were transferred to our center. Now that percentage is 40%. So almost every other patient that comes in to us um, will, uh, will have a large vessel occlusion and will be treated. And again, that speaks to the fact that the ones with more uh, severe strokes are kind of staying home. So yeah. that's kind of what, what we're seeing here. And based on uh, discussions with colleagues from Europe, that's what we're seeing everywhere. I'm curious, is that what you guys are, are, are noticing as well? Yes. I think I think it's similar in Egypt. Uh, we have an, uh, a, a remarkable reduction in the in the presentation of the uh, ischemic stroke uh, to our surface in the last two months. I think um, right. you yes, this is very very interesting remark. And also um, yes, and if we have some cases, I involved in treating some COVID patient uh, with a stroke. Uh, two of them. Uh, one was a mechanical thrombectomy, and it was a, a severe stroke, and it is uh, now um, uh, uh, ready to be published. Uh, 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 I think it is similar as you described. It is a severe stroke, and it is large, uh, large vessel occlusion. And uh, uh, yes, I think it's um, uh, resistant to the to the, um, to the treatment. And um, another case with uh, TBA uh, treated, and also the patient received TBA, and uh, uh, he failed to have a mechanical thrombectomy, but he didn't respond to TBA well. I think, uh, yes, uh, uh, this is a very interesting uh, remark. Uh, we also touched this, uh, this notation in our, in our country. I don't know what- So how many, how, how many stroke admissions do you have at your hospital uh, normally, normally? Um, in the similar, in the similar, in the similar uh, time of the year, uh, in the last uh, year, I think there is a reduction of about um, twenty to twenty-five percent. Yeah, that's 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 been seen everywhere. It's it's very interesting how human behavior is uh, the same everywhere. And most patients that come to 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 your in, so in Egypt, that come to stroke with stroke to the hospital. Do they come by ambulance or they come? They drive themselves. Um, mostly mean, they come. Yes, mostly they come with uh, with uh, by self. But um, uh, even the, uh, they come when the, the patient is very severely ill, and uh, they try to postpone the patient for a long time before they bring the patient to the hospital. And uh, I have it, a very... it, 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 even even during normal times. No, no, no. But during normal times, do they mainly come themselves or by ambulance? Uh, yes, during normal times, they bring, uh, they they come to the hospital by by uh, themselves. By themselves, yeah. The, the reason why I'm asking is that, as you know, I'm from Romania, so there, you know, I I know the you know the the patterns there are very similar because the ambulance services are not as sophisticated and and uh, and uh, well-developed as in the US or other Western European countries. And there's a higher percentage of stroke patients to come who come to the hospital by themselves as opposed to by ambulance. Here in the US, most of the hospital patients come, especially the ones with severe stroke, come by ambulance. But I would imagine that 
in other parts of the world, uh, the percentage that come by themselves, even when they have a severe stroke, is higher. It's just families bring the bring them to the hospital. And uh, yes, that's what's been shown everywhere that it, you it, you have to have a, a pretty severe deficit to decide to come to the hospital. Unfortunately, it's very interesting. I have had a few experiences where I don't know whether you guys have had the same experience. Um, I've had, uh, for instance, um, uh, last week there was uh, somebody who, uh, you know, knew a nurse that works with me and she told her that two, two days prior she had some arm weakness. Arm is still weak, but it's not too bad and it was the left arm anyway. And she didn't want to go to the, the hospital because, you know, the whole COVID thing. And so she held off. So of course I, I told, um, uh, you know, my, my nurse told her just, uh, you know, you need urgent care, didn't want to come to the hospital. So I did a telemedicine consult with her and uh, I was uh, lucky to have a, um, a um, uh, to have a good system here. The same day she had, a, of course, all the radiology facilities are empty now. People are not get, having tests, so it was wasn't too difficult to get her uh, CTA and MRI, an echo, an EKG the same day, and then on the CTA she had a high-grade carotid stenosis on the appropriate side. She had gone home already. I called her back the following day. She came in uh, for a stent. She got stented, and the following day she went home. This patient would normally have come to the hospital by ambulance or at mm -hmm. least by herself. So these are, and, and, and I've seen several, you know, the radiologist calls me and says, hey, you know, I just saw an MRI. Uh, patient was referred by the primary care physician. Patient has a, 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 a moderate, size, moderate size MCA infarct. And then we call and we do a telemedicine consult. And... Um, and we, when we solve these, a lot of these um, uh, workups that we used to do in the hospital, uh, you know, for minor strokes or mild strokes, uh, you know, mild aphasia, mild hemiparesis, whatever, patients don't want to come to the hospital. And now we're doing this uh, via telemedicine and via outpatient testing within a day or two. And, you know, I'm wondering, you know, is this kind of going to be the new normal? I mean... It is very efficient to do it this way, um, but you know it, it took this pandemic to 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 change the habits, and I'm I'm wondering what's going to happen once the uh, you know once once we're back to normal. Um, but it, it is in it, there's no question that patients, uh, unless they have severe neurological deficit, they don't come to the hospital. Tudor, uh, now again, yeah. Uh, I just want to mention something. Uh, I, I, we have a very, very nice 911 organization, but the, the things are same that you are experiencing in US or other countries. They don't want to come. And the late comers is, uh, is uh, always increasing day by day. And thanks for the down trial and the other trials that we can use them. But we do have some problems in terms of diagnosis for the uh, late comers. So for the CT, it may take time to have, uh, there, there, may, there may be a problem for a dedicated CT for stroke patients because the, uh, or only COVID patients. 
So we cannot use sometimes the CTP in, uh, in certain uh, centers. So MRI is contaminated, so they don't want to take the MRI, the radiologist. So, uh, so we need to have, we need to use sometimes the uh, isolated CT, angio and CT uh, for the uh, case selection for latecomers because latecomers are quite uh, high now, higher than they expected. So what do you think about that? For the selection. Well, you know, uh, actually, I I wanted to um, to present this, you know, the so Osama had asked me to give a presentation, and if I if I can make this work, uh, that my presentation was exactly on this topic. Excellent. Okay? I can mm -hmm. I can I can give you the bottom line. The bottom yeah. line, in my opinion, and you know, we've just published this now uh, recently in JNIS. So the bottom line is that I don't think. So if you're faced with a choice of not treating the patient versus treating the patient based on a plain CT, I have zero doubts in my mind that the right choice is to treat the, treat the patient based on a plain CT, okay? And, I'm, I, and, and, and you know, I hope I'm going to be able to convince you with the data that, that, that exists, but, uh, you know, suffice it to say that you know, an aspect score of greater than six uh, or even seven, if you want to be very conservative, that uh, that correlates very well with uh, an, an infarct that is in the 50 to 70 mLs. And if you use a clinical core mismatch approach, you know, you, you don't need perfusion because you have the NIH stroke scale score. So, and then you you, you can use your infarct size estimation based on the aspect score. Uh, I, I, I know and I hope that we're gonna be able to show this in some type of a you know, comparison, randomized trial or whatever, uh, to show that there is treatment uh, benefit even when we um, uh, uh, select patients based on aspect scores. But for now, and I'll show you some data um, that we just published, for now, um, uh, you know, the, the, the data that, that exists indicates very strongly uh, that aspect scores correlate very nicely with infarct volume. So if you use the same uh, uh, clinical infarct uh, paradigm that you used in DAWN, right? You don't, need an, you don't need perfusion because you have the NIH stroke scale score. Uh, you can substitute the infarct volume for um, for the um, uh, aspect score, and you're going to have a, a reasonable approximation of a clinical core infarct mismatch uh, situation. Okay, now it's not going to be as precise, but on the other hand, nobody cares if the infarct volume is 35 cc's versus, you know. 45 cc's. It's irrelevant. The patient is a candidate anyway. The, the, the more the, the, the toughest questions arise when the patient has an NIH stroke scale score less than 10, and where do you put the, the cutoff? Maybe six, maybe eight to approximate mm -hmm. the clinical core mismatch. But remember that in dawn, the number needed to treat was two. Okay? That's a huge number. It's huge treatment effect. You have a lot of room. You have a lot of leeway to, in, you know, liberalize a bit the inclusion criteria, and it's still very likely that you're going to have benefit, right? You don't, 
you know, we the 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 mistake we made, if you want, in Dawn. Well, when we when we planned Dawn, nobody believed us that this treatment works. What we needed to do is prove that the treatment works, and for that reason, we uh, chose the absolute best of the best candidates. That's why the treatment benefit, with the treatment effect, was two. But had I known that, I would have liberalized the inclusion criteria a bit more to achieve a, a, a treatment effect of maybe number new. Hello? We lose him? Yes. Or cut off to, uh, to six or something like that, right? You're still going to have, very likely, you're still going to have uh, a benefit. Now, you know, if you are in a center that can do perfusion and MRI, you can do it. Uh, you know, I don't think it's uh, it's wrong to do it. I, I hope we're going to be able to show worldwide that you don't have to do it. But I don't think it's 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 not like in the early time window where you're when you're when you're getting punished a lot by doing these um, uh, advanced imaging studies because you know, time is of the essence and, you know, the time that you take to do these imaging studies mean lost brain cells. Here in, in, uh, in, in the beyond, in the late uh, time window patients, if somebody a, is a candidate, they're all slow progressors. So the, the, the time penalty is less, okay? But the bottom line is if you, have, if you don't have advanced imaging, and you have the choice of not treating the patient versus treating the patient based on uh, advanced imaging, I think the, the answer is, is very simple. Treat the patient based on an aspect score. If I were a patient, that's what I would want. Instead of not be treated at all, be treated based on an aspect score, absolutely, no question about it. And I think that's something that I feel very strongly about. So I think you alluded to this in your SWIN um, uh, guidance statement regarding uh, transfer protocols. And, uh, you know, we know you've done a lot of work to direct to NGO and uh, this was alluded to aspects. Uh, my more input than seven. To... Sorry, Tudor, I don't know if you heard me. Is he on, Osama? Hello, Tudor. Still, still with us, Tudor. Hello. Yes, Tudor. Sorry, we lost you there. Can you hear us? He's now open. I I don't see him. He he uh, logged out. He left. Yes, and he will try to log in again. I think it's very interesting discussion because you know this is a this is a recommendation as regard the, the patient with acute ischemic stroke and large vessel occlusion. He should receive the treatment to whatever the situation. But when we put this patient in the huge frame of uh, on, in, of the COVID positive patient, we have so many issues that we should be concerned. One the safety of the of the stroke team number two 
the uh, shift of the capabilities and the facilities of the hospital, which is involved in treating such type such type of patient. So I Hello. He's back. Yes, today. Hi, today. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know. I, I my I, I think I'm having problems with my internet. Okay. We got through your uh, entire your last answer. What I was saying was you alluded to this in the SWIN guidelines with regards yes. to transfer. Uh, with aspect score and uh, if the transfer time is not more than two hours, uh, I know you have a lot of experience with direct to angio. Um, if you want to elaborate on that, and I think this was the premise for that. Yeah, well, I think that the, so the direct to angio is something that is, is I think better suited for. I mean, I don't don't get me wrong, we do direct to angio as well, but again, you know, the the biggest bang for the buck in the direct to transfer paradigm you get from um, from the uh, early patients because that's where you know you're dealing with with fast progressors and it, with these people you know every minute literally counts especially you know the earlier you are in the time window the more uh, relevant this is right so um, um, you know so I, I don't think it's wrong necessarily to go directly to angio, uh, even in, in these uh, later patients. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the, the big advantage of going directly to angio is um, uh, in, the, in the early time window. Uh, you know, with um, direct to angio, uh, it depends on uh what what kind of a patient you're dealing with uh if it's a transferred patient uh i think it's very reasonable uh, again you have an aspect score that is good and the patient is at you know beyond 6 hours they're likely to be if, if the patient is beyond 6 hours then their aspect score is still a 9 it is a 9 at that point and especially if it's a witness onset and you know the patient is beyond six hours, that's a slow progressor. So, you know, um, again, you can just take the patient and if you don't have CT perfusion at your, at your center, you just, I don't think it's wrong to just take the patient and, uh, and, and treat them. Um, so um, all this we've discussed is data. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so if the, if the patient, I, I'm actually advocating for patients who are within six hours that we don't even care what their infarct size is. That, that just because we're, we're spending so much time by trying to find out what the infarct size is, we're hurting the, the vast majority who are candidates anyway because there's a very small uh, percentage of people within uh, six hours who have really low aspect scores, you know, five, you know, zero to five or or whatnot. So, um, uh, you know, for those, I think, you know, if the patient is within six hours, I would take the patient directly to angio. Uh, you know, one CT rules out hemorrhage, then go. Don't don't waste any time because you're 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 more likely to harm the patient than help by doing a, a an imaging study. The only reason why you're doing the imaging study, by the way, is to exclude the patient from treatment. You're not doing the, the, the imaging study to treat them. You, 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 you're doing it to exclude them from, from treatment, right? 
So um, um, uh, for that reason, uh, you know, within six hours, my approach now is as little imaging as possible, go treat the patient. If you can make the large vessel occlusion diagnosis uh, based on a plain CT or just because the patient has a very severe deficit, you know, a great, uh, NIH greater than 10, uh, that's uh, uh, an 80% likelihood of large vessel occlusion. If your CTA takes half an hour uh, to complete, and, and, and you know, I, I know people are, are going to um, uh, be surprised by this statement, but I just reviewed, uh, uh, I, I, was just, I just uh, looked up a, a paper from the Leap Yavagal Center from 2017. They looked at uh, the door to groin puncture times in patients who had a hyperdense MCA, so they didn't do a CTA on these patients. They went to the scanner, hyperdense MCA, go directly to angio based on that versus doing the CTA, okay? And you know what the time difference was in, in door to groin puncture? 36 minutes, okay? Mm -hmm. So these are patients who got a CTA in the scanner, in the same scanner, right? The, 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 the stuff that you guys, that everybody thinks, well, it takes five minutes or whatever. But in fact, it doesn't take just five minutes. The IV doesn't work. The patient has an allergy to dye. The patient is uh, moving and there's artifact and you have to calm them down, whatever, right? I'm, I'm not sure the 36 minutes is, actually they, they, did, they did look at the, the, the actual imaging time and it was 28 minutes. So even when we do a CTA, we waste some time. So uh, you know, if you're willing to just puncture the patient and, and find out if they have a large vessel occlusion because they have a high NIH stroke scale score, I don't think that's, that's unreasonable, uh, you know, at the, at the sake of, uh, of uh, saving time. If you have a, 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 a CTA system, even a CTA that is not that efficient and you're wasting more than, say, 30 minutes or even 15 minutes to do a CTA, and a patient has a severe neurological deficit, I don't think it's unreasonable to just go, okay? Uh, you, you know, you, the, the reason why we don't do angiography in these patients is because, um, because of convenience, because we don't, wanna, we don't wanna come in, we don't wanna call the uh, on-call team in and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, if, if, if you're willing to go in and, and puncture the groin and find out if they have a large vessel occlusion, you're gonna, for the ones who, tru, who do have a large vessel occlusion, you're gonna gain time, right? And if the, the a priori, the pre-procedure probability is 80, 90% that they have a large vessel occlusion, you're gonna, you're gonna do more good than harm, right? So again, there's something to, to consider. Um, Sure, thank you. Yeah, Tudor, um, uh, we, do, we do have lots of patients with, uh, we cannot wait for PCR because this is a hyperacute emergency acute stroke patients. So there are lots of patients with this, this CT chest is positive and PCR negative. So we need to have some kind of setup in the angio suite in terms of right. the organization and in terms of the anesthesia. What's your experience? You have, you have published a paper, we know that from in stroke and thanks for you and thanks for Osama for sure. Yeah, yeah, so I think that is, uh, you know what, I, I think is working now. Uh, let, let me just, uh, let me just try again to, to join with the, with video one second.
because I was out of my uh, cell phone. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. <laughs> Hello? There you go. Hello. Yes, I think I think you can you can use uh, uh, the audio from your computer. It will work better than the audio from uh, the um, headset. He is off now, I guess, Osama. Yeah, yeah. He is trying to connect, reconnect again. Okay. But, uh, yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. Do you want to show one of your case scenarios next, Osama? Oh no! <laughs> do you do you see that we can have time for this? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Okay, now, now, now it works. There you go. Oh, okay, yeah. excellent. Okay, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, so right. So, so we, were, we were talking about uh, about what we do in COVID cases. I think I think there is a problem in uh, in the audio. Hello. Yeah. 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 It's okay. It's it's okay. okay. It good now. Yeah. So there's no there's no question that there's a lot more asymptomatic patients. Uh, out there than, than we know of, right? So my, our philosophy is that we consider every single patient to be uh, positive, right? Um, so that's the precautions that we take, okay? Now, there is some question about whether these patients need to be intubated or not. I think that the one that ideally, hold on one second. That's okay. Uh, ideally, uh, kids. Yeah. Yes, kids. <laughs> ideally, I don't think that we should necessarily change what we do just because the patient uh, is COVID positive. Uh, one question comes up whether these patients should be intubated. Um, I think that if the patients are quiet, uh, uh, they're not agitated, they're not spewing around, they don't have any respiratory issues, 
Um, I, I'm still not convinced that the patients absolutely need to be intubated, the ones who are COVID positive. Uh, so, you know, as uh, uh, Oskan said, uh, you know, we don't know whether these patients, you know, they, we don't have rapid tests, so we don't know whether they're positive or not. Uh, but some of them come in or, you know, there's a known diagnosis of COVID. And that's where we got some pushback from anesthesia that uh, they should be intubated. And I, you know, normally I fight, I mean, it, we have a very collegial, there's nothing to fight about. We do all our cases awake. And, you know, if the anesthesiologist feels that there is a, a higher risk for, um, uh, for themselves, the personnel, the staff, whatever, uh, uh, for COVID uh, contamination, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to fight with them. So if they think that the patient needs to be intubated, this is one time where I, where I make the exception. But if they are okay with doing the case awake, I'm certainly all on board with it. And we've done patients uh, who are COVID positive. We didn't take any, I mean, we, we have N95 masks, we have goggles, we have uh, a double uh, gowning, uh, you know, otherwise the precautions are the same for all patients. You know, uh, I think that's the, the key to not getting yourself uh, contaminated, you know, just treat all the patients as if they are COVID positive. The one exception that, that, that there is in the way we approach these patients is after the procedure. So if the patient is known to be COVID positive, there is what we call a terminal clean, which takes 70 minutes. I mean, these are hospital protocols. You can't just mess with that. And I think it's reasonable, right? So the patient is known COVID positive, then you know the angel suite is blocked for another hour or two. Uh, in fact, we had a, a situation like that and um, the angel suite was blocked. So we had to go to a second room that we normally don't use a single plane uh, because we had two strokes back to back and the main angel suite was, uh, was blocked with, uh, you know, they had to be cleaned and was out of, out of uh, uh, function for uh, the two hours after, the, uh, after we did the case. But other than that, uh, you know, we're trying to uh, uh, keep the maximum of precautions um, and do things that we do for, for regular patients, uh, you know, things that we do regularly uh, with, the, with the precautions in place, whether patients have, are COVID positive or not. I, I, don't use... think a, I don't think that, that intubation is a must uh, in the, and I think Tan may be here on the, on the call, I'm not sure, but, you know, she yes, is the one she who... Is, she is with us, yes. And I, I, I would, I would love to hear her uh, perspective, but you know, uh, I think some of us pushed to to. Yeah, I to, can. To, I can put it to, here on the on the panel. Yeah, some some of us pushed to you know, um, and and she was the one who collated all these opinions. She had the tough job of uh, making everybody happy, uh, but and and she can confirm. Uh, but, you know, some of us pushed that in, the initial thing was all the patients need to be intubated. And some of us said, no, we don't think that that's the case. And we kind of had a, a compromise uh, solution, which I think was, was a good solution. You know, if the patient is uh, quiet and, and uh, uh, is not coughing or, 
you know, you put the mask, certainly they have to have a mask on, um, but, you know, do they absolutely have to be intubated? No, certainly COVID, uh, you know, patients with unknown COVID status, we don't intubate. And the rest, you know, if the, pa if the anesthesiologist feels very strongly the patient needs to be intubated, I'm not going to argue with them. Okay. So, Tan, you are with us. Do you have I something to say? Uh, great discussion. Yeah, I totally agree. So um, my first COVID was a patient who was under investigation and uh, she was actually coughing. And when we discussed with my anesthesiologist, we, he, he wasn't so keen on intubating her. So I said, really? That's great. So I just took her as is and when she coughed on my table. I just, you know, stepped back a little bit, to be honest. And we have those lead shields, you know, the lead shields that are hanging uh, from the ceiling or that we bring in that are mobile. And those do serve as an extra layer of protection for all of us as the uh, angiographers. So in some ways we're relatively well protected um, from these patients. And uh, it's really the, uh, the nursing and the tech who approaches the patient who uh, are potentially more at risk for exposure. So, uh, you know, it's, it's very controversial. Everybody has a different way of doing the same thing. And if you're a facility that usually intubates by all means, do what you're comfortable with, is my say. Judah, mm -hmm. could you speak to any specifics of uh, the thrombectomy itself? Uh, I know you said uh, keep a negative balance, watch your fluid lines. Um, uh, what about heparin in patients who don't get TPA, given all the, all the story about hypercoagulability and all this going on? Uh, what about aspiration starting starting off? Uh, I know there's no any data, but uh, are you hearing opinions? I mean, uh, it's honestly, it's all voodoo, right? So yeah. um, uh, there, there's no data. I don't do anything different uh, in these patients. I, I just don't think heparin is a good idea in stroke patients, period. If, if anything has been shown to increase the risk of symptomatic hemorrhage in uh, thrombectomy patients is heparin. Uh, we gave that, that up a long time ago, including in tandem occlusions. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily recommend. Uh, sometimes we see, and I heard anecdotally of some, some of these cases where clot uh, tends to reaccumulate. Um, and that's where I think if you want to give something, uh, um, GP2B3 inhibitors uh, makes most more sense. There's a lot of talk about uh, this being driven by a hyper, hypercoagulable state, but this is the problem that I have with a hypercoagulable state. So if there was a hypercoagulable state, then we should see more stroke patients, okay? And in fact, what we're seeing is a decrease in the number of stroke patients. So if COVID patients would, um, have a hypercoagulable state uh, that lead that that, is, that explains this putative this potential high uh, higher rate of strokes. Uh, why don't we see more patients who you know with with moderate to severe strokes that don't have large vessel occlusion? Because th these patients still exist, but you know that the overall reduction in in stroke cases doesn't jive that well with the increase in stroke, number one. Number two, the, um, the, the hypercoagulable state usually affects veins more than arteries, right? And yes. 
I, I, don't, I haven't heard anybody talking about sinus thrombosis incidence being higher. We know that the PE uh, uh, incidence is much higher, um, but the DVT incidence is it's not clear that it's that much higher. So it, there's a few things that don't add up, and 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 the PE uh, story, the 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 clots in the lungs, they're more in at small vessel levels. So I'm wondering whether the, you know part of this is not necessarily some direct vessel factor. Uh, endothelial inflammation or something like that that predisposes to 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 clot formation rather than a a, a general um, hypercoagulable state and and that probably in patients who are really sick where the level of inflammation is very high um, uh, but again we we don't have that much data we don't we're we're, we're going blind right now. So to start doing giving heparin boluses just because we think there may be a, a hypercoagulable state and deviate from what we normally do, uh, I, I think it's a mistake. Uh, you know, if at all, if I were to choose giving something in addition to what we normally do, I, I would use GP2B3 inhibitors, but I, I, we don't give it routinely. So yes, in general, when we see cl clot reforming, uh, whether COVID or not, that's the first line, and yeah, give GP2B3 inhibitors, because this is typically a platelet-mediated event, right? So, um, but again, you know, whatever higher incidence of large vessel occlusion stroke is, it's not clear to me that it's hypercoagulability versus some type of uh, local vasculitis, endothelial, uh, you know, whatever it is that, 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 uh, that is at play here. Another issue is, is uh, not related with the COVID, actually. It's, it's, it's because of sedentary life. I have noticed that uh, DVT and PFO is uh, quite higher than expected, but we look at the data. Because the patients, uh, the, the people is living in a sedentary way. They are st stuck in the home, no sport, sport, uh, sport no activity. So the tendency uh, to have DVT, the vent thrombosis, and uh, in the presence of PFOs, may be increasing, not related to uh, COVID, but these factors uh, should be included in the uh, database, I guess. I, I agree. You know, again, one, one of the things we haven't seen in, we, I haven't seen reported that clear cut uh, as a, there is a higher incidence, there's a higher incidence of P, there's no question about it. Uh, but it, it's not clear to me there's a higher incidence of DVT. I think that's still out there. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, that also has to do a bit with, uh, you know, we would expect to see a higher incidence of stroke in general, right? Do we see that? Do we, do we know that actually there's more cases of stroke because of COVID, you know, in this COVID population? It's not clear to me. I was just talking to these Barcelona, uh, large, you know, big hospitals. They had 3,000 patients with COVID or 2,000 or whatever. I was asking them how many stroke co positive stroke uh, uh, COVID positive stroke patients did you have? Twenty, right? Yeah. So in this range. So that's the that that's my kind of my feeling for the incidence that the, the, the prevalence of stroke among hospitalized patients. Um, not very high. Now it's it's higher than what you would expect normally. Uh, you know, in a general population uh, without stroke. Uh, that comes into that comes to the hospital, 
with, any, with another type of infection, let's say with flu or something like that, it would be an interesting comparison to make. You know, uh, when you have patients with flu, what's their incidence of stroke? I bet you it's less than 1%. So there is probably a higher uh, uh, incidence, but it's not that, that uh, crazy high as, as uh, the, the data from, from Wuhan suggests. Or maybe there's different strains of the virus and, and some cause uh, a certain, uh, you know, uh, they have certain clinical manifestations and uh, different uh, um, uh, uh, reactions in the, in the body. And then there's probably some genetic factors into how people, how different people react to the same virus um, that we don't I, understand. That's why I think a SVIN, uh, a worldwide SVIN COVID registry would be so valuable because we could get some information, you know, uh, on on the prevalence of you know and the ways COVID affects strokes across the world, across many races and behaviors and things like that. Let me uh, um, transfer another voice. Uh, I think uh, this uh, adopted also by Mark Rebo. He was um, our guest last week, and he adopted a voice that um, um, taking into consideration that the COVID patient who presented by stroke is severely ill from the part of the pulmonary condition. And according to the pulmonologist, they say that uh, when the patient reaches to this stage, the quality of life or the lifespan of this patient is, is uh, very trivial because it's uh, something like uh, end-stage uh, disease. Uh, so um, he, uh, Mark Rebo, uh, told us uh, the last last week that uh, he more uh, uh, he became more inclined uh, to not to treat um, um, a borderline patient with with large vessel occlusion, for example, um, five aspect score or uh, or low lower, uh, large core, uh, um, uh, sorry, uh, um, high uh, high severe NIH score. Um, uh, and uh, he is more inclined to reduce the introduction of the mechanical thrombectomy for this uh, uh, group of patients who are uh, located in the gray zone of uh, guidelines. What do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, look, Mark is, uh, I have tremendous respect for Mark. Uh, he, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the smartest people in the game, in my opinion. And I think, as usual, he's right. I mean, there's something to be said about that, right? So if a patient is on um, uh, uh, on a ventilator, you know, the, the, in New York City, the survival rate on uh, patients put on ventilators was, I don't remember the exact number, but 20% to 15%, something like that. So once you're on a ventilator because of COVID, the, the odds are stacked against you, right? And then you, in addition to that, you have a stroke that is, you know, substantial, uh, the, the, the chances of, of a good outcome are, and I'm not talking good outcome in the sense of zero two, even better than that, you know, zero three or whatever is you think is meaningful in terms of your quality of life is very, very low. But these are discussions that need to be had to, with the families, right? So, you know, many times when families hear that, look, on top of being on the ventilator uh, with, uh, you know, with a 15% chance of survival, now, you know, my dad also has a, 
a, a large stroke where we're already seeing some significant damage, which is going to impact in a major way, even that small chance of, of recovery, a, a lot of families are, are actually going to say no, right? It's also a, a bit of a, a matter of how we present that. And so when you, when you have somebody that has a very, very low chance of, of, of a good outcome, and by uh, doing the procedure, you're uh, uh, jeopardizing the health of others around you and, and so on and so forth, you've got to take these things into account, into considerations. Uh, uh, but it's, they're, they're tough decisions. If that patient is uh, 30 years old, I would, keep, I, I would probably be, be aggressive. If the patient's 80 years old, I'd be less aggressive. I mean, these are, uh, you know, there's no one size fits all. There's always um, uh, the individual factor that we need to take into account. But I, I do think that, yes, the, the overall life expectancy and prognosis from everything else other than the stroke standpoint here comes significantly into play, right? Um, uh, yesterday we had, uh, I was involved in, uh, in a, in a similar case, a patient, uh, was on a ventilator with COVID was put on sedation and, uh, at an outside hospital. And, uh, uh when they, they took him off sedation, it was on sedation for a week or something like that. Um, they noticed the patient was unresponsive and then they scanned his head and, he had a, a large uh, stroke, but with still potentially some, some salvageable brain. But it was a sizable stroke with a, with a carotid, proximal carotid occlusion. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, the patient was, uh, the transfer would have been a project because the patient was kind of hypoxic, uh, not doing that great. And uh, the family, the, the, uh, the wife said, uh, enough were not uh, and i was on the fence you know i was i was not sure that you know uh, getting him there's elderly patient 70 something is is the best thing to do but luckily the decision was made by the wife who said my husband would never have wanted this and uh, please just just go comfort measures only um and patient was not transferred <laughs> so uh, I think, uh, uh, do you have some slides to present it to Dor? Yeah, I do, I do. Yeah, okay. Let me see if I can make this. Um... So I wanted to talk a bit about the, the large core, you know, uh, uh, You know, if if we should treat patients with large baseline core, and that's something that is, if you want, uh, do is it is related to the, um, uh, the question that was uh, uh, asked before. Okay, here it is. Share. You guys see? It's coming, yes. Yes, now it's it's on. Okay. Can you see it now? Yes, yes. Okay. 
All right. So uh, first of all, you know, how do we how we how do we define large core? So in general, uh, we think that large core, if we go by aspects, is uh, you know greater than five or greater than four. I think uh, this definition of of large core is a bit of a moving target because we used to think uh, even six was a large core that disqualifies patients from treatment, but I think that's now uh, pretty much history. On MRI, uh, we consider it, uh, you know, the, 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 the sh there is a bit of a shift, downward shift in the definition of core 04 or DWI volume of, of greater than 70. But again, the definition of large core itself is a moving target. Uh, uh, we think uh, volumes just when we uh, use uh, CT perfusion or MRI, but there's now some applications, uh, there's some companies that are uh, getting into measuring the infarct volume uh, on a plain CT. And again, just uh, uh, given the fact that we need to think about stroke treatment across the world and across the uh, spectrum of, of resources that are available across in the world. I'd like to see a more simplified approach to imaging. And I very much welcome these kind of applications that calculate your infarct volume based on, on a plain CT. Um, and uh, I look forward to studies that will compare these volumetric analysis uh, on CT versus MRI. There's no question MRI is better, but the question is whether CT is good enough. Uh, and uh, uh, a, lot, a lot to be learned in this, uh, in this area. Uh, again, uh, we talked about this when, when we uh, discussed about whether we should do, uh, we should treat patients um, uh, be in, the, in the extended time window uh, based on uh, CT uh, information only in these centers where uh, CT perfusion or MRI is unavailable or takes too long. And again, I just want to emphasize that we don't care whether this, the core is 10 or 40. These are patients who are, who are candidates, right? What pretty much what we, what we care about is whether the core is large versus not large, right? And that's usually the cutoff that we use now is about 70. So these uh, people from Australia have looked at how does a CT perfusion correlate with an MRI uh, in terms of being able not to, uh, and, and, and in comparison with a plain CT with an aspect score, uh, not in, the, in, its act, in its ability to measure uh, precisely the, uh, exactly what the, what the infarct is but in terms of telling you, is this a large core or not? Is this a seven greater than 70 cc infarct or not? So they, they, do, they did an aspect score. They, they did a CT perfusion at the same time, obviously. And then the patient had an MRI as well. And they looked at, you know, how, which one is better at showing you uh, uh, an infarct greater than 70 cc's. And the bottom line is there was no difference. They, they, they found that CT perfusion and aspects are equally good at telling you whether you have a large core or not, which is pretty much for the purposes of making treatment decisions. This is really uh, all you care about. Uh, and that uh, an aspect score cutoff 
of six or, le or, or less uh, uh, was uh, well correlated uh, with a uh, likelihood of having a greater than 70 cc infarct on, on MRI, okay? So at least for the aspect scores seven and above, um, we, uh, we have a good uh, approximation of, an, of a DWI lesion that is probably re, you know, approximately as good as, as, as a CT perfusion. Now, there is a, a, a situation where we, where we see a, a large infarct on, on CT, but uh, the infarct is actually falsely large because on CT, the hypodensity can also be caused by collaterals, high CBV uh, that creates this false uh, hypodensity. So I think that for good aspect scores, uh, it's very reasonable you, know, you don't have CT perfusion, you don't have MRI, you have an aspect score seven and above or eight or and above, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, I don't think it's absolutely necessary to, to do a, a confirmatory study to measure the volume. If the aspect score is low, that's where you may wanna uh, make sure that the aspect score is truly low on CT and, 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 and perhaps get a, a confirmatory study uh, either CT perfusion or MRI to make sure that that aspect score is, is truly low. But if for all intents and purposes, you know, for showing whether a, a, an infarct is, is large, uh, whether you do a CT perfusion or, or an aspect score, especially in the later time window, it, it's probably not that big of a difference. Uh, the other thing with CT perfusion, you know, we, we, we're using, uh, most centers do CT perfusion anyway. There's very few centers, maybe mainly in France where uh, 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 imaging is primarily MRI. So let's talk a bit about CT perfusion. These thresholds, we, we, we define uh, infarct versus no infarct on a CT perfusion based on some thresholds. Uh, there are com usually compared to the other side. So uh, less than 30 uh, CBF compared to the contralateral side or CBV, it's not as, as, as accurate as a definition, so the, but there is a CBV definition of what is dead brain. These are all things that, are, that were determined uh, uh, based on uh, uh, patients who had large vessel occlusion, uh, had a baseline CT perfusion, and then people looked at, they were not opened up, and then people looked at their final infarct volumes and saw uh, what, or, or I'm sorry, so some of them were opened up, some, were, some of them were not opened up, and the ones where they were opened up, they looked at, you know, what really remains, remains dead, and, and the, the, what predicted uh, a reversibility, a, a, a lack of transformation of a hypoperfused region into, into an infarcted region. So this is, this is how these thresholds came about. But the problem with that is that uh, we're now opening up vessels faster and faster. So there is this time component to, to, to the, the way the thresholds were, were determined. So if you, if you open up the vessel faster, it turns out these thresholds are different. So uh, that's what this study actually shows that, uh, that these uh, uh, perfusion thresholds for patients with acute ischemic stroke 
are time dependent. If you're within three hours versus whether you're within 12 hours, whether you open up the vessel within half an hour versus within two hours, it makes a difference in what these thresholds are. The bottom line is this is a moving target. This is another uh, study uh, that comes from the Hermes uh, uh, meta-analysis that's basically saying the same thing. These perfusion thresholds to, to calculate core and penumbra are different uh, based on the time, it put point in time at which the patient uh, had undergone the scan, right? So what, I, what my understanding from this is it's all imprecise. You know, tomorrow when we open up the vessels even faster, these thresholds are gonna change. What is not changing much is the aspect score. The aspect score is, 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 is a bit more reliable uh, from that standpoint. It's not perfect, but again, there's some uh, 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 advantages to, uh, to the aspect scoring that is a bit less time dependent. Um, so why do we actually wanna uh, rule out uh, uh, patients? Or why, why do we actually need to know what the size of the core is? Uh, because we want to rule out patients from treatment. And in fact, when we do advanced imaging to de delineate the core, whether it's MRI or CT perfusion, uh, it's because we feel that it's more precise. We're more precise in delineating this core. And as I showed you before, uh, it turns out that precision is probably not that uh, important. And what you, what you need to determine is, does the patient have a large infarct? Whether your 5cc is plus or minus, it's probably not that important. And in general, how important is it uh, to, uh, for efficacy and safety to know exactly what the core is? And then second, very important, how frequent are patients with a large infarct? Because that's gonna uh, drive a bit our strategy. So when, when we talk about the frequency of these large cores, and again, we're, we're referring now to the the early time window, zero to six hours. Uh, it turns out these, the patients with large infarcts in the zero to six hour time window are rare. Uh, this is uh, data from the Buffalo group uh, looking at M1 uh, and ICA proximal uh, large vessel occlusion stroke. Within six hours, 16% only had uh, a large core defined as, as aspect zero five. This is data from the Catalan Stroke Registry uh, that uh, uh, maybe Mark has spoken about uh, last week. Uh, it keeps track of all, all their strokes in, 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 uh, in, their, uh, uh, in their province. Uh, so it's a population-based study. So uh, within the six-hour time window, uh, uh, patients uh, arriving with an NIH stroke score of six or greater which is sort of a surrogate for large vessel occlusion. Uh, it's not precise, but again, uh, but we see that uh, in, in this patient population within six hours with NI stroke size score greater than six, the percentage of aspect score zero to four is 2.2%, very low uh, likelihood of having a large infarct in this super early time window. Uh, this is data within the zero to three hours from clot bust. Um, uh, patients with M1 occlusion, aspect score zero to five in the first three hour, only 4%. So 
So the bottom line is that the earlier the time window, the less likely it is that the patient is going to have a large stroke. So when I hear, you know, I see these case presentations, patient stroked in front of me, you know, was in the, in the, uh, uh, an inpatient in the hospital and uh, within half an hour, the stroke response team uh, got to the scene and then they show you an MRI or a CT perfusion. And I always ask, well, if you have this patient within an hour, what can possibly be, what can possibly be shown on an MRI or a CT perfusion that will make you not treat the patient? Why are you wasting this time uh, when the likelihood of a large infarct is so small in the first in the first hour, what, and even then you're not really re, uh, uh, believing necessarily that this tissue is dead. What would you? What can you find on a CT perfusion or an MRI done within the first hour? But even in the first three hours, they will make you not treat the patient. So again, this is data from our own center. Uh, from, UP, from UPMC, uh, from when I was at UPMC, uh, uh, incidents of patients with, large, you know, with cores of uh, less than 100 cc's within the first uh, six hours, 16%, very uh, uh, in line with the data from Buffalo. Um, and even when we measure the core more precisely with CT perfusion, uh, that in, the incidence of patients with, with large infarcts without mismatch is actually very small. This is data from the Hermes uh, collaboration uh, published in 2018, about uh, uh, five, about uh, 600 patients from the 1800 uh, cohort of patients that uh, made up this database uh, had undergone a CT perfusion prior to um, uh, thrombectomy. So this is data based on approximately 600 patients. Uh, this, all the CT perfusions were analyzed with rapid. Um, the majority, of course, uh, uh, had cores of less than 70 cc's, uh, but there were some patients with infarcts greater than 70 cc's, small number. Uh, and uh, first of all, 95% of patients in this, in this cohort had mismatch by SWIFT prime criteria and 78%, almost 80% had really large penumbral volumes of greater than 60 mLs. So the bottom line is in the early time window, most patients have mismatch, most patients have small core, most patients have large penumbral volume. Is it really worth it looking after it? Most of the time it's gonna be there. And then the second question, okay, let's say we're looking after it because we were looking for it because if we find that there is a large core, it's dangerous to the patient to treat them. Is that true? Well, this is data from, from Hermes uh, showing that in these patients with large infarcts greater than 70 mLs, the direction of benefit, now this is a small number, but the direction of benefit is in favor of thrombectomy. So even when we take these large cores and treat them, uh, there is no indication that we harm these patients, right? Uh, there is a handful, 24 patients in the Hermes data set that had cores greater than 100 cc's and, you know, very crude 
uh, analysis. Again, based on 24 patients, you can't say much, but there's no direction of harm whatsoever. The, uh, the direction is in fact in favor of benefit, even when you thrombectomize these large core patients. And perhaps the most uh, convincing data set is this uh, uh, baseline imaging study uh, from Hermes, uh, uh, in my opinion, the most uh, uh, important paper that came out of the Hermes uh, collaboration that shows the baseline imaging characteristics and how they predict um, uh, response to thrombectomy. And you can see here patients with aspect score of zero to four, which is a statistically significant uh, 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 a statistically significant association with benefit in patients who undergo thrombectomy. Uh, same with patients uh, whose uh, MCA shows a greater than one third uh, involvement, so greater than one third MCA hypodensity. These are patients with large cores. It turns out that when we have enough numbers to look at whether they benefit from thrombectomy, that there's strong signals that even in these patients, there is benefit which in my mind uh, uh, makes me sort of call into question this whole theory uh, that it was the dogma for, for uh, treatment of, of, for reperfusion therapy in stroke, that the, the, the benefit of reperfusion is to salvage the penumbra and, um, and that the only tissue that, uh, that, 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 who's, who's, uh, that the only benefit of reperfusion has to do with the penumbra. Uh, it turns out that I, you know, it, it's intriguing to me that even these large infarcts uh, that are reperfused uh, uh, benefit. So it, it kind of calls, uh, uh, it raises the question in my mind of whether there's other factors into play that lead to benefit from, from reperfusion, uh, such as, uh, I, I'm not sure, it's, it's a speculation, but are we more uh, prone to uh, recover? Is, is there some recovery rewiring benefits? Are there any other benefits beyond penumbral salvage that we derive from reperfusing the brain? That's something that I think we need to uh, address uh, more and more in, uh, in the future. This is uh, data that looks at uh, uh, the harm that reperfusing uh, large cores can uh, uh, bring about. Uh, this is symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage uh, effect from reperfusing uh, large cores. If you look at zero to four category here, clearly a higher chance, four times more likely uh, to, to uh, develop symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage. Same for a third of the MCA involvement. If we look at parenchymal hematoma, uh, the direction, again, is towards harm, although it doesn't reach statistical significance, but it's, uh, the, the point estimates are more in the, in, towards harm. So clearly, some of these people will develop symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage um, at a higher rate than the ones who have small infarcts. But the overall treatment effect is towards benefit, and that's what patients care about, giving them the highest possible chance of doing better. Uh, and I would say that probably most of us, if uh, uh, faced with a choice, you know, do you, uh, what would you prefer, 
to have a treatment that, that gives you yeah. a higher chance of doing well overall, but at the expense of a higher chance of bleeding in the brain, most would choose the, the higher chance of, of doing well. And that's the analogy to IVTPA. If you give IVTPA, you have a higher chance of having a, a symptomatic hemorrhage in the brain, but the overall treatment effect is positive. So perhaps that's what, that's what we're, uh, a situation that is analogous to that uh, is what we're dealing with here. Uh, again, a data that suggests that treating these large cores uh, brings about is associated with benefit uh, rather than harm. This is a, a data uh, a series from, uh, from uh, Bern, a large endovascular center in Europe. Patients treated with aspect score 05. The first thing you note here is that as well, so that's kind of the magic number of uh, uh, incidence of aspect 05 in this time window is 15%. Uh, if you look at how the patients did uh, who were treated with uh, aspect 05, well, the ones who reperfused had a out good outcome rate of 50%. The ones who did not reperfused had an outcome good outcome rate of 13.7%. Uh, Big difference. So again, so I'm sorry, this is a zero, uh, ranking 03. If you look at ranking 02, 11% uh, versus 32%. So clearly, low aspect score is a poor prognostic factor, okay? But it's not necessarily a treatment effect modifier. If you look at a treatment effect here, it's about 20%. It's about what we see in, in general in these thrombectomy trials. It's just that the good outcomes are shifted towards the lower end of the spectrum. So yes, if you have a low aspect score, you're gonna be less likely to do well with thrombectomy, but you're gonna be equally likely to benefit from thrombectomy uh, as you are if you have a good aspect score because the control group also in the low aspect score group does worse than patients with good aspect scores who are not treated. And same thing, aspect scores less than six meta-analysis, pretty much all these studies that look at treatment of patients with large infarcts, the, the, the trend is towards benefit. So, um, uh, in this meta-analysis, uh, 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 the uh, control group, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the treatment group, 30% versus very poor uh, rate of uh, outcomes rates in the good outcome rates in the control group. Again, strong treatment effect, uh, differences in mortality. Again, if you look at, uh, at, at meta-analysis, the direction of benefit is very clear in favor of thrombectomy. So, Bottom line is not only is there, is there a very low incidence of large vessel, of, of large cores in the, in the zero to early time window, but it looks like if you treat these patients, you don't harm them. It looks like you don't harm them. It's very likely you don't harm them. And it's probably uh, that you also, uh, that, you, that they benefit from treatment. Although I do think that we still need to prove that with randomized trials. Uh, again, same thing. Uh, this is a recent uh, German uh, uh, trial. Uh, predictors of, of ranking scores in patients or, or good outcome scores in patients with a large baseline infarcts. Surprise, surprise, successful reperfusion, age, and uh, stroke severity. So the usual suspects that are present in regardless of, of what the status of the baseline 
uh, aspect scories. And that sort of uh, all this story with reperfusing large infarcts reminds me of the, uh, this uh, paper that has made a lot of furors. I think it was two years ago when it was published in, in Nature. It kind of uh, challenged all the, uh, the dogmas that we uh, were um, uh, going by uh, so far that dead brain is dead brain. This study shows basically that uh, pigs who were, uh, whose, whose heads were recovered from slaughterhouses kept on ice for two hours. So these were heads only of pigs for two hours put on ice uh, and after two hours uh, uh, analyzed uh, microscopically, uh, there were still some neurons that were alive. So it kind of challenges the, uh, the whole, uh, because they, and, and I'm sorry, these, these, uh, these, um, these pig heads were reperfused with some uh, serum uh, that, uh, so, so the, the whole concept is that uh, dead may not be dead and that there's a lot of things that we don't know about how long uh, neurons can, can uh, last uh, without any blood flow at all. Uh, now, how about, let's switch about uh, a bit to uh, treatment beyond six hours. That's something that we discussed uh, uh, earlier on. Uh, this is data from the Trevor registry. Uh, again, it, it, it kind of asks the question, do you really need advanced imaging for the, for the uh, six to 24 hour time window? This is data from the Trevor registry, which actually went in parallel with Dawn uh, these were uh, sort of a real-world experience uh, where 2,000 patients enrolled. And out of these 2,000 patients, um, uh, about 483 were treated beyond six hours. Some of them were excluded because they, were, um, uh, they had distal occlusions uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, about 450, just slightly over 450 patients were so to speak dawn candidates. They were exactly just beyond six hours, proximal large vessel occlusion. Uh, and some of these patients were selected based on CT only. Others had CT and CT perfusion. And if you look at the uh, uh, comparison of outcomes in patients selected only based on CT versus CT plus advanced imaging, there was no difference in outcomes uh, if at all, the point estimate was in favor of CT uh, uh, patients based on, on, on CT. Um, and I'm just going to spend a few slides on uh, the Aurora data set, which the Aurora data set is uh, pretty much a, uh, a Hermes for a treatment beyond six hours. Uh, there were uh, five studies. Of course, you all, uh, all know about Dawn and Diffuse that they enrolled patients beyond six hours, but positive, but I'm sorry, but uh, ESCAPE, uh, uh, which had a time window of zero to 12 hours, also enrolled quite a few patients beyond six hours. Revascat had a time window of zero to eight hours. It also enrolled a bunch of patients um, beyond uh, six hours. And then positive had a time window of zero to 12 hours. This is wrong here. And some of these patients were also enrolled beyond six hours. So we got uh, this, uh, all these patients together in an individual level meta-analysis. Uh, you can see here uh, the uh, inclusion criteria for all these studies, escape positive and Revascat 
did not require um, uh, advanced imaging for patient selection. Uh, the minimum requirement was an aspect score. And um, the total number of patients uh, in the Aurora uh, group is around 500, uh, somewhere in that range. Um, and uh, basically what the, uh, if you put the, all these cases together, what it uh, shows here is that aspect scores, uh, uh, of course, the uh, in patients with uh, uh, good aspect scores, eight to 10, very robust treatment uh, effect. But even in patients with aspect score six to seven, uh, there is a very significant treatment effect that is essentially not different than in patients with good aspect scores. And when you get to the aspect scores of zero to five, again, these are almost 500 patients uh, treated beyond six hours of symptoms onset. Surprisingly, the point estimate, even in patients with aspect score 05, is uh, uh, in the direction of benefit, but with wide confidence interval, this is not a statistically significant uh, relationship. Uh, and also, I should point out that these patients with aspect score 05 should not have been enrolled in these trials because almost every, not almost, but all of these trials excluded participation of these patients based on, a, based on an aspect score of, uh, of uh, at least uh, uh, six or less. So, uh, I'm sorry, uh, five or less. So these are all patients who squeaked through uh, probably because uh, of misinterpretation of their baseline scans by the investigators. So this data should be uh, interpreted a bit with a grain of salt, but I think that as far as these uh, uh, good and moderate aspect scores, it's pretty clear that, that there's a benefit from, from revascularizations. Again, uh, this uh, uh, column here uh, makes the point that the aspect score is a, uh, a prognostic factor, not a treatment effect modifier, uh, in that yes, patients with high aspect scores do better than those with moderate aspect scores and even better than those with low aspect scores, but the treatment effects are still there. So in other words, the control patients also do poorly if they have low aspect scores, they do proportionately poorer and therefore the treatment effects tend to be uh, maintained. So there are a few uh, large core uh, uh, trials uh, in the making uh, one of them is uh, uh, in extremis, uh, part, the, the large core part of in extremis. In extremis is basically a, a common platform for two trials. One is the low NIH stroke scale score and the other one is the uh, large uh, uh, core. Uh, this is the last day, the large, large core with, pre, uh, with a planned 500 patient uh, sample size, proximal occlusion, uh, uh, and basically zero to five aspect score, except for patients older than 80 uh, who will have a, an aspect score of, uh, of uh, uh, four or five as, uh, as inclusion criteria. Uh, otherwise, the primary and secondary endpoints is a shift analysis, very uh, typical for other uh, studies. Uh, um, speed of, of uh, uh, workflow is, uh, is emphasized in here, and this is sort of the diagram for the uh, last day uh, study. 
Uh, it's uh, mainly, uh, right now it's uh, uh, going on in France only, but the, uh, it's planned to uh, 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 ex expand into Spain and, uh, and the US. There's already about 70 patients uh, enrolled so far. Tension is a German uh, study in, uh, basically in Europe, uh, run out of Germany. Uh, it is a, also a large core uh, trial, uh, uh, up to 11 hours after, uh, when the st procedures start 12 hours after uh, uh, symptoms onset, um, with an aspect score, not zero to five, but three to five, which in my mind kind of defeats the purpose. Uh, I, ideally, in the early time window, we should have no requirement for aspect scores so we shouldn't care what the aspect score is so that we don't take more time for imaging, just go and treat the patient. That's, that's why last day was, was designed as a, as a zero uh, to five uh, aspect score trial. Um, Tesla is a study that is uh, a run out of the US, 400 patients uh, uh, planned enrollment, goes out to uh, 24 hours, uh, this is very ambitious with an NIH Troxel score greater than six uh, and uh, aspect score two to five. There's a Mr. Clean Late, uh, sort of same, same thing, six to 24 hours. Uh, it's uh, sort of a, of a dawn if you want, uh, but with uh, larger uh, infarcts and with patients that are not dawn uh, candidates. So this is kind of the, the uh, workflow and diagram for um, uh, for uh, Mr. Clean Late, and this was, uh, I'm not sure if this is gonna still happen. I'm uh, just throwing it out there, may or may not happen. Uh, we, I hope it will, uh, but um, I, I hope we will get to the point where uh, we won't need to uh, just uh, online. And I'm, uh, I'm uh, longing to the, to the time where uh, we're gonna have in-person meetings so we can not sure if that we can shake our each other's hands because I think that may be a thing of the past forever, but at least make personal contact. So uh, with that, thank you very much, and uh, I'm happy to take uh, questions if there are any. Thank you so much, Theodore, for this uh, very descriptive and uh, informative uh, uh, talk, uh, Dr. Oskan, Dr. Sebi. Uh, uh, can we have some question for from the attendees? Sure. So we have a few questions. Tudor, there's one question. What about young stroke patients in the era of COVID pandemic? There's not much more detail to it. I don't know if it's a regular stroke presentation or with regards to thrombectomy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am really encouraging uh, everybody to participate in the uh, COVID stroke registry. Uh, hopefully we'll, um, we'll find out more about this. Uh, uh, do we have a higher incidence of, of younger patients? Uh, it's, it's not clear to me. As I said, the uh, Mount Sinai group has published uh, this uh, uh, letter to the editor in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine suggesting that there may be a higher incidence specifically with uh, large vessel occlusions, but I, I'm, I'm actually not sure. Uh, I think we, that we, we don't have the denominator in those uh, case series 
So we really, really need to have the denominator in order to uh, make a, a better informed statement of the true incidence of, um, uh, of, of uh, stroke in young patients. Uh, one of the questions is a general question, I guess. What about the patients with low NIH? Can we take these patients to directly to angiosuite? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, look, we, we, I don't think, again, you know, the treatment effects in all these trials are so high that I don't think, you know, we're going to harm patients. But remember, the patients with low NIH stroke scale scores are slow progressors, right? And there's a reason why they have a low NIH stroke scale score. And usually they have collaterals, they have less volume of ischemia. So I would say if you don't have a perfusion scanner, if you don't have an MRI, the, uh, the NIH stroke scale score is six and above, less than six, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, but uh, I mean, uh, less than six, I'm not sure if there is benefit to begin with, period. But you know, if their NIH stroke scale score is at least six, uh, and you don't have a CT scanner, a uh, CT perfusion, you don't have an MRI, you know, again, the, the treatment effects are so strong. I would be surprised if you, if you take these patients and don't, uh, uh, and, you take, and, you, and you select them based on an aspect score, whether uh, there will be no benefit. However, I must caution a bit that, you know, as the NIH stroke scale score uh, go uh, as the NIH stroke score go down, there's less ischemia that you uh, that you know there, there's there's less ischemia that uh, is needed in order to still qualify for clinical core mismatch. So, in other words, if you have say an aspect scores of six or seven, and you have an NIH stroke scale score of 20, right? That suggests that the, the uh, uh, you know, that, 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 that's still indicative of mismatch because the NIH stroke score of 20 suggests a huge uh, at-risk area. Uh, and so the, the NIH, the, 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 the aspect score of, of seven is probably less infarct than the, than the entire area at risk. But if you have an NIH stroke scores of six, that is less territory at risk. So if you have an, NI, an aspect score of six with an NIH stroke scale score of six, I'm not sure if there's still a lot of mismatch there. So probably the treatment effect is going to be lower if you have a larger infarct with a lower NIH stroke scale score. So that's something to be a bit cautious about, right? Even in Dawn, we, again, to maximize the mismatch, we said uh, if the NIH is greater than 10, uh, you have to have uh, uh, an infarct that is uh, 30 or less. Only if you have an NIH of 20 and above can you have uh, an infarct that is 30 to 50 because we wanted to have these giant uh, mismatches, right? Um, so you, you, you have to, um, and, and you know, assuming that, and I think it's a, it's a fair assumption that mismatch is the biggest predictor of response to thrombectomy uh, may not be the, the, the only one, but it's, it's, it's probably the biggest response that when you have an NIH stroke scale, a lower NIH stroke scale score, you need also to have a lower infarct burden to qualify for mismatch. 
So if a patient has an NI stroke score of six and an aspect score of 10, I think that's a, that's, that's a reasonable patient. I mean, I wouldn't have any qualms about treating that patient. But if the patient has an NIH of six and uh, an aspect score of six, maybe, the, there, maybe there's no at-risk tissue, right? That's where we need more research in the future. I, I can't say, you know, I can't say that I'm convinced that uh, treatment is beneficial. But if you have somebody who, you know, has uh, a very small infarct, even with an NIH stroke score score of six, I think that's probably a good patient to treat. So I, one other thing I, I, I mentioned, I, I uh, 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 wanted to show the uh, paper that uh, we just published. Uh, uh, Shashwat Desai from UPMC is the first author on this patient. I think it's a, on this paper, I think it's a very important paper. It shows the relationship between aspects and likelihood of mismatch uh, 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 over time. And uh, now one thing, uh, and this was published in the uh, JNIS, I think last month. So if you look at DAWN criteria, clinical core mismatch, right? So this is, these are uh, uh, hundreds of patients from UPMC that were looked, that were analyzed based on, uh, so the, they all had uh, uh, advanced imaging but the analysis had to do, so the, the advanced imaging confirmed that patient had dawn uh, a criteria-based mismatch, but the analysis was based on the aspect scores of these patients. So number one, as expected, uh, patients, uh, the, the likelihood of dawn criteria mismatch goes down with time, right? So if you're in the zero to three hour time, just at three hours, you have over 60% likelihood to have this giant mismatch, right? Uh, that we, that we uh, used in Dawn. Uh, and as time goes down, uh, it goes by, this incident decreases. But very important, even at 24 hours, there's still 20 something percent of patients who still have this mismatch. And one thing that we've shown uh, is that we, and we've seen in Dawn, and there's gonna be papers on that uh, more and more, is that even these patients who at 24 hours have mismatch, if you don't treat them, they're still gonna end up having a large infarct. So probably, you know, even, if, even beyond 24 hours, if you have this kind of mismatch, patients probably still benefit from, from uh, intervention. Now the other uh, part, the other the other part of this uh, of this analysis, is to look at the uh, uh, prevalence of a good aspect score, moderate aspect score, and poor aspect score uh, uh, by time. And so, one thing that is uh, very important is that if you're in the aspect score six or greater category the likelihood, you know, the, 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 um, the uh, likelihood that uh, you're gonna have uh, a mismatch across those time epochs, zero, six, six to 12 and 12 to 24 hours is unchanged, okay? So that's, that's very important because, you know, sometimes we think, well, what's the significance of an aspect score of six 
at say 24 hours. Well, it, it, it means it, 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 it still correlates with mismatch. So that's very important, okay? Um, so um, the other thing is that uh, as noted uh, uh, in the, uh, uh, that, that, that aspect score zero, zero to five across all the time epochs are actually uh, uh, low. So for this, uh, this paper, basically what it suggests is uh, in, the, in the six to 24 hour time window, uh, and that's shown, uh, you know, it's, it's spelled out in the paper, but it's kind of, you can inter infer it from this slide. In the six to 24 hour time window, 80%, 79% uh, of aspects six to 10 meet dawn criteria. So if you look at uh, 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 patients, you take the six to six to 10% and, and this column here is how many patients meet dawn criteria. So if you have in the first 24 hours, six to 24 hours, sorry, uh, which is really uh, what we care about in terms of the significance of an aspect score. I think in the zero to six hour, uh, it's, 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 it's clearer that, that, that there's probably benefit regardless of aspect score, but in the beyond six hours, it's not that, it's not that clear. So if you look at beyond six hours uh, in a six to 24 hour time window, 80% this year and this year, 80% of patients uh, and this year and this year, 80% of patients who have aspect scores six, uh, I'm sorry, six to 10 meet dawn criteria. Okay. So what does it mean that if you're, um, uh, if you have an aspect scores of, of seven at, uh, and you're at 18 hours and the patient says a, a large vessel occlusion, that 80% of the times that patient will meet dawn criteria. Okay. And again, based on the fact that Dawn has such a strong treatment effect, it's actually likely that uh, uh, if you take all patients with aspect scores uh, uh, six to 10, they're probably gonna benefit from, from thrombectomy, right? Um, the prevalence of clinical core mismatch diminishes with time as mentioned here, but even at 24 hours, 25% of patients with NIH stroke scale score greater than nine meet dawn criteria. And the proportion of uh, positive dawn criteria by aspects category, and that's shown here, is constant in time. Uh, that means that likelihood that clinical core mismatch is present for a given aspect score is the same throughout 24 hours. You see that here? So aspect score six, uh, whether it's uh, zero to six hours, six to 12 hours or 12 to 24 hours, it's the same likelihood that you're gonna have clinical core mismatch. And same with aspects uh, nine to 10. So basically given the, the uh, very strong number needed treat of two in dawn, it is reasonable to assume uh, the robust benefit of thrombectomy for aspects six to 10, uh, 80 of which meet dawn criteria as a whole. And again, as I mentioned before, several times, lack of CT perfusion or MRI should not be a factor that, that deters you, uh, that, that, that makes you not offer thrombectomy to your patients in the beyond six hour time window. I think an aspect score is good enough. It may not be perfect, but it's good enough. 
and it's certainly better than not treating the patient. Much more time do we have, Osama? Do you want to ask your last questions? Excellent presentation. Thanks, Tudor. Thank you. You're muted, Osama. Yes, we have more more than one. Um, I think we have some question, but. Uh, all of them are answered during your presentation, Tidor. And uh, I think uh, we have one about uh, when to start antithrombotic uh, drugs after thrombectomy in patient with uh, AF who has hemorrhagic transformation. I don't think it's related to COVID patient or not. So uh, I, I, you know, to me that has to do with the size of the infarct and size of hemorrhage, right? If it's just a small dot of hemorrhage, I, I, I tend to be more aggressive. I think I'm on the aggressive spectrum of, of starting antithrombotics, including uh, NOAX. Um, there are now data suggesting that it's safe, even in moderate uh, uh, size infarcts to, to start antithrombotics early. Uh, there are some some trials that are uh, ongoing. Uh, it also depends on the patient's risk, uh, Chad's VASC scores, or uh, for those who have AFib or you know if they have mechanical val valves or whatnot, uh, uh, when to start. Uh, in general, in patients who uh, do not get uh, IVTPA, I give aspirin uh, in all patients immediately uh, or you know before or uh, after thrombectomy uh, in patients who uh, have um, uh, uh, who, who come in uh, who need anticoagulation and come in uh, with with uh, low uh, INRs or have not taken their NOACs uh, I typically wait uh, 24 hours, but if the stroke is not large, we start them back on uh, on anticoagulation. But that depends a bit on the size of the stroke and the amount of hemorrhage. I think uh, uh, we have one more question about um, uh, your preference in the era of COVID patient uh, from the point of intravenous thrombolysis. Which drug you prefer to use, uh, tenecteplase or alteplase? Well, I think the data, I mean, honestly, I think, I mean, there's a lot of um, uh, inertia in, in the medical field and, and that can be a good thing. But, um, you know, if you actually look at the data, uh, you wonder why we were not using tenecteplase already. Uh, and I can tell you at, at my center, COVID or no COVID, we, were had, we had plans in place already to switch to tenecteplase. We're very close to going with tenecteplase uh, as a matter of routine. Um, and with COVID is even more of a reason, obviously, because it's, uh, it's, it, it, it utilizes less resources, which are very... Uh, uh, precious in uh, during times of COVID. So, but even without COVID, I think uh, there is a strong case to be made for tenecteplase. Okay. 
I think uh, this is uh, other questions are already answered during your presentation, so I will not uh, repeat them again. And uh, um, by this, I think uh, we are finished. Sepi, Oscan, do you have anything to say? Uh, uh, thanks a lot, Osama Tudor and Sebi. It's, uh, uh, it's a good motivation for us and for all, all, all of our colleagues from the region, at least in this uh, kind of uh, pandemic. Uh, so hopefully we'll meet in a, a congress that will uh, not shake our hands, but uh, at least we'll see each other. <laughs> exactly. All right, great. Uh, thank you, Tudor. Thank, thank, very, very thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for thanks, being thanks with so us, and uh, it was very preci precious and appreciated for us to have you, Todor. Thank, thank you. you so I, I, I honored to be invited. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye -bye. Be safe. Be safe. Bye bye. Thank you, Sepi. Thank you. Thank you, Osama. Bye bye.